Thank you, Katie. And good morning, Grace. It's a pleasure to be here with you sharing uh, today. If you've been around church for any length of time, particularly if you were uh, in a youth group, you've probably heard someone use the metaphor of a dating relationship to illustrate that knowing God is also a relationship. Often the point is made that you can't go on a date with a picture of someone or a book about them. You have to actually take the person on a date if you want to build that relationship. That there's a difference between gaining knowledge about someone and actually getting to know them. I'd like to add something to that metaphor and say that even if you do go on a date with a person, the conversation can't be all about you. You need to know that you need to get to know them for that relationship to grow. But where this metaphor falls apart is that in human relationships, this applies to both of you. But that's not the case with God. He already knows everything about you, and it is we who must get to know him. Now, the Bible is the first and most important source of information to get to know God, but we can't stop there. Otherwise, all we'll have is knowledge. We must move to a relationship, and in that relationship, prayer is how we communicate. Now, a little side note quickly before I dive in. It has been very encouraging uh, to hear these messages from various Grace members over the past couple months, but one problem you run into when you have uh, several guest speakers is that perhaps the message might not be as cohesive as if one person had planned the whole series. So a few weeks ago, Mark Brown preached on the Lord's Prayer, and the key phrase he kept coming back to was, it's all about you. Well, at the time, I had already developed the framework for this sermon, and my key point is, it's not about you. It's all about God. So while that may sound like Mark and I are disagreeing, it's not the case. I completely agree with everything uh, that he was saying, and I have run this by him to make sure we're both on the same page. (laughs) He's in Vancouver today anyway, so uh, I could have got away with anything. But uh, nothing I say today, though, will contradict the theology of what Mark taught. See, what, what Mark was saying is that when it comes to the benefits of prayer, it's all about you. Who does prayer change? Who is it for? It's not for God. He doesn't need our prayers. Prayer is for you. But what I'm saying today is who is prayer about? Who is the focus of our prayer? Whose will matters when it comes to prayer? It's not ours. Prayer is to God's glory and for our joy. And today I'm focusing on the God side of that equation. Uh, This should be a quote up on screen here. A.W. Tozer, uh, from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our worship is pure or base as we entertain high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So what does this have to do with prayer? Well, it comes down to faith. Without faith, there is no relationship with God. And if you're praying, that obviously takes some faith too. So what we think of, what we think of God, or who our picture of God is, that is who we have faith in. The more you know of who God is, the deeper and more intimate your faith will be, and consequently the way you pray will change. So on the screen, I hope there should next be a couple of verses. Yeah, there we go, a couple of verses about faith. I'm not going to read them all for time's sake, but I'm sure that many of these are familiar. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We walk by faith, not by sight. Your, uh, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but instead in the power of God. Today, we're going to be looking at the character of God within the context of our prayer practices, and my hope is that better knowing God and understanding his character will grow our faith and improve our prayer life. 
I'm going to be using an acrostic prayer guide, which you've maybe heard before. It's the word ACTS. Uh, stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So that last one just means the act of asking for something earnestly or humbly. Years ago, I was taught this as a tool to add some structure to our prayers, and that's really all it is. It's just a tool. It's not a biblical formula that you have to follow. So if you find it helpful, then great, but don't get focused on this. It's not the point of my sermon. I will say, though, that I think one benefit of a model like this is it reminds us that there's more to prayer than just the requests. If we see uh, our relationship with God as a relationship, then our communication needs to be more than just asking for the things we want. So anyway, I'm going to be using this ACTS framework for exploring God's character and to contrast the way our prayers might change as we shift our focus from ourselves and onto God. We'll start with adoration. So perhaps this goes without saying, but it is difficult to offer genuine prayers of adoration to God if our focus is on ourselves. And I know I'm generalizing here, and I don't presume to speak for all of you, but I think it's fair to say that prayers of adoration likely form a relatively small part of our prayer life. But why is that? You know, perhaps culturally it feels unnatural because it's not the way that we speak to each other. But I think that at its root, it is also because we've lost sight of the idea that prayer is all about God. We make prayer about us, and so it's easy to skip over the adoration to get to the requests. The Psalms, they offer great examples of adoring language. They're full of praise and exaltation. So if you don't know where to begin with adoration, then you could start by turning to the Psalms and pray the words you find there. Or just pray the words of some of your favorite worship songs. I think uh, yeah, there's a couple uh, on the screen there. Again, I'm not going to read them, but these hopefully are familiar to you. Uh, just some language from the Psalms. So it's a tiny sample. Um, this language of praise is, is all throughout the Psalms. But I also want to consider how Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Starting here reminds us of who we're praying to. It's our Father. Often the New Testament uses the term Abba, Father, which I'm sure you've heard before is best translated as something like Daddy. It's a term of intimate affection. God invites us to be in a close, intimate relationship with him, as close as a father. And I don't want to take anything away from that, because it's true, but have you ever considered the flip side of that? If God is the father, then you are the child. And all the parents here, I think you can testify with me, young children rarely know what is best for them. And I'm not saying that to be condescending or dramatic, but honestly, without our guidance, many of their decisions wouldn't actually be good for them. I know what's best for my kids. I'm constantly working to make their lives safe, happy, character building, fun, etc. But that often means going to bed earlier than they would want to, or eating foods that they might not choose, or practicing piano, or putting others first. So when you come to God in prayer, if you want to embrace the image of him as a father, remember that you are the child, and that means we acknowledge that he knows better than us. I want to stick for a moment with the father-child analogy to let me, uh, let me add this last thought. Uh, it is rare during the busyness of the day that my children will stop and tell me, I love you, or show me any spontaneous adoration. But at bedtime, when I lie down and snuggle with them, that's when they'll often hug me tightly. And they'll say, I love you, you're the best dad in the whole world, or something like that. And it's heartfelt, they really mean it. Not that I am, but they think I am. Uh, in that moment, there's nothing else distracting them. They're just enjoying their closeness with me and overflowing with love for me. And that's what adoration looks like. Similarly, when you pray, try to stop for a moment thinking about everything you want and being distracted by life, just be still and know that he is God 
and then tell him that he's the best dad in the world. He already knows, but it's good to remind yourself. Uh, I'd like to look at one last characteristic of God that should inspire adoration in our prayers, and that is that he is worthy. Imagine for a second that we were forming a grace hockey team, and in walks Wayne Gretzky, or Sidney Crosby, or Austin Matthews. I don't know who's considered the greatest, but imagine one of them comes in here and says, I could coach you, and we were like, nah, I'm pretty sure we got this, okay? Or if hockey's not your thing, then just substitute anyone that you hold in high regard. They would feel, uh, they would be right to feel a little indignant, right? Because they're worthy of recognition for their accomplishments. Now, of course, we have to avoid idolizing any human being, but uh, they're worthy of some recognition for what they've accomplished. So, counterpoint, what if they walked up on stage and said, I'm the greatest hockey player ever. Everyone worship me and give me glory, right? We wouldn't have a lot of respect for that. And yet, all throughout the Bible, this is the picture we see of God. He is very, very concerned with his own glory. I want you to hear this quote from Pastor David Platt. God lives and God works to exalt himself. God is a radically God-centered God. You're saying, what do you mean? That almost sounds kind of selfish. God lives to exalt himself. Well, let's ask a follow-up question. Who else would you have him exalt? At the very moment that God exalts anyone or anything else, he is no longer God. God alone has the right to exalt himself, and all throughout scripture, he is showing that right. His supreme passion is his glory. Think about it this way. If God is perfectly and infinitely loving, and all that is love is summed up in God, then what is the greatest way that he could show love to you or me? By giving us what? Himself. Enjoyment in himself. Glory in himself. Knowledge of himself. Knowing his glory is our supreme satisfaction. So our God is worthy of praise and glory, and this God allows us to be as close to him as a child to a father. I hope that with this picture of God in mind, we can incorporate more adoration into our prayer. The second one is confession. Now, why does this practice require a right understanding of God? Well, first I want to take a look at what is probably the most well-known verse on the topic of confession. So it's kind of in the middle of the top verse there, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. On its own, this verse already sounds somewhat human-centric. And if we approach confession in prayer through the lens of us, then the most important part in this verse is really the first part, if we confess our sins. Forgiveness appears to depend on our action or our initiative. But if we zoom out a little bit and look at 1 John 1, 8 to 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So now it's a bit more about God and that's the correct way for us to approach confession. You see, our sins are already forgiven. The work is done once we have believed in faith, in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. He paid the price for all of our sins, not just the ones which we remember to name in confession. What this passage is saying is that you are a sinner. And once you understand and confess that, then you receive forgiveness. And then, after that initial confession, we continue to confess, and of course, we should confess those specific sins which the Holy Spirit brings to light in our lives. But ultimately, it's not our responsibility to confess each and every sin to make sure they're covered. Rather, it's an ongoing confession that we are sinners, and that we are desperately in need of God. 
So when we approach it with this God-focused mindset, it opens the door to an even deeper benefit of confession in prayer. Uh, Consider the words from Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, when we treat prayer as being all about us, and when we think confession depends on us, we lose sight of the fact that we could never truly know the depths of our sin and our sinfulness. When we approach prayer as being about God, then we allow him to orchestrate the work of sanctification in us. Perhaps this example is overly simplistic, but it makes me think of my prayers when I was a teenager. If I would come to prayers or confession, it would mostly be about lustful thoughts. And if I was feeling particularly honest, I might confess that I hadn't honored my parents or something like that. But that was pretty much the extent of it, because as far as I was concerned, these were the big sins I struggled with. And of course, the truth is, I had a lot more sin in my life than just lust and disobedience. But by approaching prayer with a self-focus, I treat it like a confession booth. I would acknowledge the ones I was aware of and move on. This prevents me from inviting God to illuminate the deeper and darker corners of my heart so that he can begin to work there as well. But when God is the focus of our prayer, when you come to confession with an understanding that he already knows everything about you and he desires to search your heart and your thoughts and lead you in the way everlasting, then confession can become a more fruitful practice, one which involves growth and change, not just ritual. Next, we're on Thanksgiving. So I got to the point, uh, this point in writing the sermon, and I kind of started looking for a few verses to have on screen about gratitude. My mind immediately went to some of the classics, like give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, or rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. But as I began to compile the list, I realized I was missing the point. This isn't just about verses reminding us to be thankful. This is about God's character. And the more we understand who God is, the more we will understand how much we have to be thankful for. It's probably true that um, if you're praying prayers of gratitude, your focus is already turned towards the gift giver. But even so, I think a better understanding of the character of God may serve to increase the frequency of our thanksgiving and maybe change the balance a little between uh, how much time we devote to prayers of gratitude and prayers, uh, prayer requests. So after a little more study, I landed on this passage here, Genesis 22, 13 to 14. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This verse is where we get the name Jehovah Jireh from, the name of God that we most commonly associate with his provision. Most translations render this name, the Lord will provide, but other interpretations of the Hebrew have it as the Lord sees or the Lord has seen, which is actually more similar than it might at first appear. The English word provide comes from the Latin word pro video. Pro means before, and video means to see. So to provide is to foresee. This is exactly the picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, 8, in the words which immediately precede the Lord's Prayer. He says, do not be like them, speaking of uh, pagans who have long, uh, long prayers. He says, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. That is a picture of Jehovah Jireh the God who sees and who's already working to provide. The second passage that I chose for uh, this is one of the most famous verses, Jeremiah 29, 11. Again, it's tucked in the middle there. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. 
Now, I love this verse, and I don't think there is anything unbiblical about using a Bible verse for encouragement. But I do think we miss out on something when we take a Bible verse out of context and don't acknowledge what the original writer meant. In my opinion, this verse, unfortunately, is one of the most egregious examples of that. So, zooming out a little more. uh, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So these words were written to Jewish people in exile in Babylon. In the previous chapter, the prophet Jeremiah has denounced the false prophet Hananiah, who has been claiming that uh, the Jewish people would return from exile in two years. Instead, says Jeremiah, you will be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So settle down, build houses, get married, and even pray for the prosperity of the city where you're now living. These words of Jeremiah were spoken to people in the midst of great hardship and suffering. God promises them that even when it doesn't seem like it, he's still working for their good. And then he adds that if they remember to call on him and pray to him, then they will see once again that his faithfulness has always remained. I hope that doesn't let the air out of that verse, so to speak, but I'm confident that when we see a fuller picture in this passage of who God is, it will deepen our faith and our ability to be grateful in all circumstances. Think about it this way. If the picture we have of God is the God of just, Jeremiah 29, 11, one who promises only good things for us, then how do we pray prayers of gratitude when we face hardship? But when we rightly know him as the God who promises to work for our good, no matter what our circumstances, then we learn to pray prayers of gratitude even when we find ourselves in the proverbial valley. So finally, supplication, or simply put, prayer requests. This is where we probably spend most of our time in prayer, and it's probably what most people are thinking of when they even use the term prayer. I think there's no question that it would be healthy for all of us to shift some of our focus away from prayer requests and towards adoration, confession, thanksgiving. But let's not let the pendulum swing too far in that direction. You see, there's plenty of false teaching out there about how to pray to get what you want. But there's also false teaching which says, God already knows everything, so don't bother asking for things. That is equally unbiblical. On the contrary, God wants to hear from us. Imagine telling your kids or your partner, don't bother me with what's on your mind. I'm already working hard to make your life happy. That's not good for a relationship. I want Annika to tell me what's on her mind, and God wants us to tell him what's on ours. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Furthermore, and perhaps most critically, we must bring our prayer requests to God because we need God. If we don't bring prayer requests before God, it's evidence of pride in our lives. It's like saying that we don't need his help. In the time remaining, I'd like to highlight one characteristic of God and one corresponding characteristic of humanity, which I believe will have the biggest impact on our prayer requests. And that is this. God is great, and we are utterly dependent on him. I have three kids. The youngest is almost five months old, and the oldest just turned eight. If you compare the two of them, their level of ability and their level of dependency on Annika and I is miles apart. I was going to do this, but i got to keep the microphone here. Okay. Clara, our youngest, can do almost nothing. Oliver can do lots of things. But when you compare the gap 
uh, sorry, when you compare them both to me, the relative gap between them closes up quite a bit. When it comes to survival, Oliver is still almost entirely dependent on us. I'm sure you see where this is going. In the same way that I am far above them, so too is God far above all of us, and even the most capable of us is still completely dependent on him. It would take the rest of the day to even scratch the surface of what the Bible says about God's greatness, but I have to do this again in an hour. So here are just a few verses that remind us of God's greatness. Get them up on the screen. Thank you. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. He is great and to be feared above all gods. Our galaxy alone contains an estimated 100 billion stars, and he created them all by speaking them into being. And he calls each one by name. And then we get this awesome picture in, uh, of Jesus in Revelation 19, which ends with his name inscribed on his robe and tattooed on his thigh. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our God. And in light of this God, I have a few final points I want to consider when you come to prayer requests. And I'm going to fly through these because I know we're running out of time. Firstly, while God absolutely does invite us to bring any and all of our prayer requests before him, always keep in mind that the ultimate purpose of our prayers is not to get something, but rather to get to know someone. It's a relationship and not a transaction. I love something that Einer said in his sermon a few weeks ago. He's talking about the idea of being persistent in prayer, and he said, could the purpose of persisting in prayer be not to make your wishes heard, but rather to learn his will? And this brings me nicely to my second point. Our prayer requests must always fall under the umbrella of his will be done. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he only teaches us to ask for two things, our daily bread and to keep us from evil. These things we can confidently ask for because we know that they're God's will for our lives. Now, I'm not saying they're all we can ask for, but they are something we can always ask for. His very nature is to provide for us, and his will for our lives is always that we grow in righteousness and flee from evil. So these are prayers that God will honor because they're according to his will. Two verses which are often misused uh, to promote a name it and claim it prosperity gospel sort of lie. I think they're up there now. First uh, John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And then there's Jesus' teachings about prayer recorded in Luke 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So you'll notice the emphasis, hopefully, on according to his will and the Holy Spirit. Contrary to what some televangelists would have you believe, these verses are not a promise that you can learn how to command blessings from God. Rather, they are a promise that if you ask God for more of his spirit, he will give it to you. And what is the role of the spirit in our lives? There are many, but if you look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So do you see the connection here? God promise us, promises us more of his Spirit if we ask for it. One role the Spirit plays in our lives is to reveal to us the will of God. And when we pray according to God's will, he promises to answer those prayers. Third takeaway is a reminder that many of us need to have a higher view of prayer. And as I've tried to show, 
that will largely depend on who you believe you're praying to. So while philosophically I know that prayer is important, the evidence of my life would show that I have a fairly low opinion of its value, especially when it comes to praying for others. I know this won't be true for all of you, but I also know I'm not alone. I have definitely said the words, I'll pray for you, more than I've actually prayed. I treat those words as though they are the useful thing, like somehow what matters is to comfort that person with the thought that someone is praying for them. Or even if I follow through on the promise to pray, I still somehow think of that as less than offering practical help. So I'll say, I'll pray for you and your family, but can I bring you a meal or help with groceries or do something to meet your needs? I'm not downplaying the importance of action. The Bible is clear that our faith expresses itself in action and in love for one another. So the action does matter for sure. But often I'm guilty of seeing the prayer as a sort of platitude and the act of service as the noble thing. But rather, if what the Bible teaches us about this God is true, then let's remember that praying for someone is actually the very best thing we can do for them. And so I hope that God will grant all of us a higher view of prayer. Final point I'd like us to consider is the importance of growing our faith. Earlier, I drew a parallel between uh, our knowledge of God and our faith in God. And the degree to which we know God corresponds directly to the measure of faith we have in him. And so therefore, I would suggest that one of the most important things we can pray for is that God would increase our faith. But this is very much a be careful what you ask for kind of prayer. You see, almost everything we ask for, at least in terms of our wants and needs, is asking for something that could decrease our faith. I want you to stay with me for a moment because I know what I'm about to say is uncomfortable to consider. But when we face hardship in our lives, do we pray for it to end or that the hardship would continue so that we have to turn to God more? When you or a loved one are sick, do we pray for healing and relief or for continued sickness so that we will need more of God's strength? If we lose a job, do we pray that God would give us a new job or that he would keep us unemployed so that we're forced to trust in his provision? Which is ultimately better for us, to have lives that cause us to become more dependent on God or less dependent on God? Now, I hope it's obvious that I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek to make a point. I am not suggesting that we should pray for unemployment or illness, not for ourselves and definitely not for others. This is not what Jesus meant when he said, pray for those who hurt you. Okay? Remember, God created us as humans. He gave us needs, and he delights in meeting those needs. His very nature and his glory is bound up in providing for and blessing his people. But I think that especially in our materialistic and individualistic Western culture, we have a tendency to want to believe in a God who blesses us, but we don't want to consider that the same God might allow us to experience difficulty to increase our faith in him. I mean, I'm sure most of us will acknowledge that we see this God in the Bible, but we like to think that that's kind of an Old Testament God or a special circumstances God. But when we pray and worship today, will we allow that to form a part of our picture of God? Consider Jesus' famous teaching known as the Beatitudes. Many of the traits that Jesus claims are blessed are the very traits that we run from. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, the persecuted, the insulted, Do we treat Jesus' words as if they're just a good philosophy to live by or as if they're actually a true revelation of the way the world is? What I mean is this. Was Jesus just giving us an encouraging saying that we can offer to someone when their life sucks? Like, hey friend, I know you're mourning, but hang in there. Remember, blessed are you. Or are Jesus' words true? Like, are those people actually better off? I know it's not a comfortable idea to wrap our heads around, but maybe at the very least, when we come to God with our prayer requests, if we incorporate a little of this theology and acknowledge that God knows what's best for us, it may not always be 
the thing that we're asking for. Sometimes it may be the opposite, and that may serve to increase our faith. If and when we find ourselves in that difficult place, either personally or as a church family, I pray that our view of God will be one that does him justice so that we can stand and declare that we know a great God and we get to call him Father. As you go today, I'd like you to let the words of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 abide in your heart. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. I'm going to close in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a great God and that you have invited us into a relationship with you. We acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from you. Give us understanding to know you and elevate our thoughts about you so that we might begin to glimpse even a fraction of your glory. Teach us to pray, and when we do, please meet us where we're at by your grace and fill us with the surpassing joy of knowing you. Amen.